Hello, I'm Dave Moss, founder of The Unfunded List and host of the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. Thanks for joining us as we're exploring collaborative giving. Today, we'll be talking about P3s, development, affordable housing, gentrification, and more with John Amon, CEO of the Westside Future Fund in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, did I pronounce that right? John Amon? Pretty close. John Amon. John Amon. Welcome. So far, I believe we've only communicated over email. It's nice to meet you. Thank, uh, you. thank you for joining us. And uh, we're just going to dive right into some questions. All right. Great. Uh, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? I grew up at Atlanta, Georgia. I was actually born in Atlanta, the city of Atlanta. All right. And because I don't have a southern accent, a lot of, a lot of folks <laughs> uh, are like you did. And I did. I, I, did. I grew up in, in the city of Atlanta. Um, you know, overall, I, I guess I had a, a, a pretty good childhood. The uh, um, Some of the defining things, I guess, that happened in my childhood were... Uh, you know, I went to a very small uh, school when I was growing up. It's called Padilla School. And actually, when I started there, it had just opened up as a, as a small private school. So that was a really defining life experience. I graduated with uh, with um, 26 people. So it was a small school. It's much different now. 26. 26 was my graduating class. Was it, uh, you say it's a private school. Did it have a, a particular focus? Was it like a boarding program? Did it... No, it wasn't a boarding program. It was, um, you know, kind of based on, uh, you know, Pacific, you know, way of, uh, of, of learning in terms of, you know, how they taught, but, um, it actually, I, I, you know, lived just down the street from the school. So I walked to school. That sounds nice. So it definitely wasn't a boarding school. <laughs> um, and then I went, I went right down the street to Emory university, um, uh, which wasn't my first choice, but my father, taught there. So I got a tuition scholarship. So my your father was a professor. Yeah. He was actually a doctor. Interesting. So he, he did, he's taught in the medical school. He also saw patients and did research at Emory At Emory. My, uh, to, coincidentally, both of my parents are professors, T- technically doctors, but you wouldn't want them in any kind of medical emergency because their <laughs> their doctorates are in history and French. So if you ever have an emergency in any of those areas. If you're French, call 911 after <laughs> um, That is my, um, one of my things about people who are not, who don't have medical degrees, call themselves doctors, is what if there's an emergency and people think you're a doctor? The I understand wanting to recognize people's accomplishments, but the um, it's very interesting. I enjoyed being a professor's kid. Did you, uh, my parents were at Colby College up in Maine. Uh, and one of the perks of being a professor's kid is you get to run around the campus a little bit, use some of the facilities. Did you ever hang out at Emory? When I was older, I, um, I think one summer I did an internship with my father. Oh, really? When he was doing some of the research. Yeah. And, but growing up, my parents actually got divorced when I was really young. So I see. when I was growing up, I didn't actually see a whole lot of my biological father. Oh, um, but, but. When I was, yeah, I was older, you know, a teenager, um, spent some time in that. Cause I remember one, one time he was doing a research and well, I don't even want to say it was, you know, and some of the, uh, cause he was an expert on when babies are born prematurely, they often have a lot of fluid in their brain. Hmm. And so he was kind of leading research on what you do about that. Very interesting. Um, did you ever consider becoming a, you didn't become a doctor. Mm-mm. No, I never considered <laughs> being a doctor. 
and I never considered uh, doing a PhD either because I don't think I have the patience to write a dissertation. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd like to have the title to your point. People call me doctor. <laughs> yeah, it sounds nice. But the, the dissertation always seemed like that looks like a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, my father explained it to me that um, if you're getting a PhD, that's you're going to the edge of all human knowledge, and then you have to, and then you go a little bit further. Um, and you don't have to, you don't have to do that because there's plenty of knowledge already existing that you can work within people who have, who choose to like pursue PhDs need to make that choice that they're they're that the current, that all of known knowledge is not enough for them, that they need to go out and create more. And I think that should be, a, 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 obviously that shouldn't be everybody. We don't all have to go out and <laughs> have pioneering new ideas, uh, plenty of work for the rest of us to do. Uh, so you, so I did not go to Colby college. I was very, um, uh, very much wanted to leave the state of Maine <laughs> at so the you, time. You and I have that in common because I very much wanted it. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. not only Atlanta, but I was like in the same two mile square area. And you did go to Emory, though. Yeah, I went to Emory. So you waited until you got until after college to leave Atlanta. Yeah, went until after I graduated from Emory. So we'll get to that in a moment. But but, but um, back to Little John growing up in Atlanta. Um, uh, what kinds of, uh, other than school, what, what kinds of things did you do? Did you play baseball? Did you um, do plays? Did you do, what did you, what did you do as a kid? No, I didn't play baseball. I was always, I was always a little fearful of a speeding hard ball. <laughs> I also got hit, I got hit often. Yeah. That was stuff that I, I used to crowd the plate a little. Yeah, quite, quite <laughs> overcome. I, for sports, I played soccer and basketball. Mm. And I guess in a, a triumph. We had a rivalry with a local private school in my in my senior year, the year before we lost to them in the championship, and in my senior year we beat them, and we beat them and uh, went into double overtime, then to shootouts, mm. beat them on their home turf in the shootout. I can still remember the song I was listening to. Remember <laughs> <laughs> that game, beating beating that school. So it's the funny things you remember. Um, yes, but but growing up, I had a, I had a tight group of friends because we were all went all went to Padilla together, so we got to know each other really, really well. Yep. Small school. Uh, I would think you would have to, you didn't have, those were, if you didn't get along with those kids, then that was it. <laughs> yeah, that you're right. <laughs> you were kind of recycled. You're mad at somebody, go to somebody else and cycle back around. Yep. Uh, I, I went to a pretty small school up in Maine, but not quite, not quite your size. But yeah, if you, right. If you end up with a problem with somebody, it's not like you can't avoid them. They're, they're, they're going to be in your class next year. Like they're going to be around. Um, the um and you can't really like i think in some ways i found it's a, a little restricting you can't necessarily become your own person because there's so few people you have to be friends with these folks right you have to fit into the this tiny culture of tiny folks um no. what you said that they have a particular way of teaching was it was it um like montessori did they, what, what was the approach yeah, to education it was, yeah it was kind of based on the montessori method very good very good um were you a good student Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was a good student. At the time I was there, they actually didn't have, they changed that later, but when I was there, they didn't actually have letter grades. No grades. So you. So how do you know if you were a good student or not? <laughs> they write an evaluation that says, you're, you know, you're doing very well mm -hmm. um, or, or not so well, but they would, on the philosophy of written grade didn't tell you enough. Mm. So they would, um, yeah, and all, I mean, except for something like a math quiz, obviously, but everything mm -hmm. else was a written evaluation. But yeah, I did. I kind of like that. I did. Uh, I was always a good 
a good, you know, both through, you know, all my schooling was always a, a good student. My only time I've, I've <laughs> my, my senior year when, you know, having focused on having fun, I remember, I think mm. I failed, mm. uh, I failed woodshop class because mm. I didn't, I didn't complete the project. Um, but, uh, but other than that, yeah, I did I was a pretty good student. You didn't make your birdhouse or, or whatever. I, I still got it was supposed to be. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Make, I I've still got the it. birdhouse I made in Mr. Sprague's class. Does uh, it work? I, no, I, I, I mean, I, the birds don't seem to like it. <laughs> the, in theory, they could use it, but they don't seem to want to. Um, I got it hanging up outside with some other ones. Um, was it a uh, it was a private school? Was it a religious school at all? No. Uh, did you have a particular cultural or faith background growing up? I grew up uh, a Christian orientation. My father was very Catholic. Uh-huh. And a doctor. And a doctor. What does it mean by saying very Catholic? So mm-hmm. he, he, he went to church you know, every Sunday, mm. took his faith pretty seriously. And he said that when he was growing up, he was easy thinking about being a Jesuit priest or a doctor in terms of his sure kind of but my mother also grew up catholic but then uh she had some strong feelings about the catholic church Mm -hmm. people Um, do people do and so she wasn't as uh you know practicing of the of the faith as my father was Mm. um so growing growing up when i was ever with my father i'd go to church whenever you know most of the time i was you know, all with my mother, so it wasn't, wasn't, um, so kind of an organized faith wasn't a regular part of my growing up. But you went, you went on occasion. The, on occasion did, right. you, did you pick anything up from it? Any, any useful lessons or anything? And then they carry with you today. One thing that, that stuck with me and it was my father, after my mother and father got divorced, you know, about a year later or so, he got remarried. Oh. And I had a younger sister, but when he got remarried, because he was very Catholic, you're not supposed to get divorced. Right. Um, so he, uh, and because I still remember this, re- you know, received from the, the church one after and got an annulment oh. at the time, which kind of, as it was explained to me, that it, the annulment basically says the marriage never existed, therefore there was no sin. Right. Um, but there I, you are, you exist. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I had a hard time with that. Yeah, that does sound difficult. So that gave me some kind of early, less than friendly feelings about the Catholic Church, because I felt like, mm-hmm. I, you're right, here, here I am, how does that work? They were never married. I yeah, I, I, I didn't grow up Catholic. I grew up in a very Catholic town, though, and so I was often confused. By Catholics, that was the, the standard <laughs> standard thing growing up for me. Did you ever go to the what are they the CCD the confirmation classes? I know Catholic young folks do that. Uh, no, I don't think. I'm trying to remember if I did or not, I hadn't. I don't think I did. Yeah, I never went either. But I would always the like I said, it was a, the whole town was Catholic, so that all the other kids would go. And they would like come. They would always be talking about it, coming back talking about it. I myself am Jewish, and many of them would first learn about Jews in that class, and then come to me with questions about 
Judaism and all that. I was one of the only Jewish students in the in the town. And so most of, I mean, that's most of my memory of Catholicism is just sort of being confused. I remember, I also remember when I first heard about annulments, one of my friends went through the same thing. And I just remember being thoroughly confused about that. I mean, we Jews get divorced, but that wouldn't, it's not a, I think you have to get, there's a thing that's called a get. You have to like get permission from the family. But that's like, it's Orthodox Jews. It's not something that I've been, in my personal experience. So you, um, um, talk about generosity and giving. I find that most people, hopefully anyway, learn about that when they're a child. Um, in here, you've, you've got some little bit of church experience. You went to a school that you liked, um, uh, split family. Um, who taught you about giving and sharing and the importance of generosity? Well, that's a great question. Thank you. So, <laughs> so I don't know. I've asked a lot of, I've asked that question to a lot of people. <laughs> because I would, I would probably, for me, rephrase that to more of a surface perspective. Sure, yes. Um, um, when, well, especially when, so like I said, I've asked a lot of people this question. And, and, and also a follow-up question was like, well, was, do, you, do you remember the first time, and feel free to answer this too, first time you ever actually made a gift of your own accord? Uh, and for most people, when they're, if they're a child, right, children don't have money. So that wasn't you buying something or giving it. It's usually either you did some work to earn the money to buy a gift or you did service for a neighbor. Or a, that's mostly what I hear from folks. And I'm trying to get to like the core motivations of what makes people give. So oft, often it is service. So feel free to talk if that's how you learn well, about it. I think my first, to your, to your point, I didn't have money to give away. But my first service experience I remember when I was a teenager, I was still in high school, and I volunteered for a summer at a place, was that, interestingly enough, run by a church. Um, mm-hmm. It was called Emmaus, Emmaus House. And they uh, had a summer camp for inner city youth in Atlanta. And I volunteered there for a summer, so I didn't, I didn't get paid. Hmm. Uh, but I went there every day. You were like a counselor, or well, yeah, like a cool. like a like a camp counselor. Yeah, now I was thinking about it. Um, that was so through that, the church. Was it a Catholic church? Well, you know, I actually think it was Catholic. Now that we're circling back, is there are there? I've never. I've only been to Atlanta a couple times. Are there a lot of Catholics in Atlanta? It's definitely not predominant, but but there's a good population. All right. I think we'd be Baptist. There's a lot of Baptists. Did you, did you end up volunteering at a Catholic program because of your own Catholic background or just because it was a program you wanted to volunteer for? I think I found out about it through my school, but I just in thinking about it, did I consciously make that decision? I don't remember thinking about that way, but that, but that perhaps did that have something to do? I mean, I, str- I struggled a lot with, with, with growing up with uh, estrangement from my father. Yeah. So, so that was a big theme of growing up for me. Um, mm-hmm. But you chose to uh, volunteer for the Catholic Church, and then you went to school where he taught. No, I was that is, you, is that you trying to become closer to him? I we're getting pretty personal here, but <laughs> no, I think I mean, I, I think I was had always in my head that my father was a doctor from a, a service perspective. Sure. Yes. So he wasn't in it, to, you know, to make, I mean, I think he made good money, but that wasn't his, his primary. Yeah. I don't think that's why I become, I mean, doctors get paid because they deserve it, but 
uh, I don't think doctors become doctors to make the big bucks. Hopefully, hopefully not. Uh, they are actually one of the least generous professions. Um, they, they donate to charity uh, in smaller amounts compared to other professions. And that's largely because, as you say, they view their work as service-related work, right? Mm. Um, most folks who work in service actually don't like donate less than people who work in like more extractive fields, <laughs> right? Like bu general businessmen donate a lot because right, they probably have some guilt issues. So definitely. <laughs> They're doing it for different reasons. A doctor can, mm -hmm. right, use his actual skills and stuff to make the world a better place and does so every day. So he's not constantly looking for ways to give back after work. Um, and you, it, that bears out in the numbers. They donate a smaller percentage of their income. Um, but that's, um, I thank you for that. Um, I always think it's interesting to, you know, learn a little bit about um, how folks were growing up. Uh, and, um, you know, I never grew up in Atlanta, so no idea what it's like to be a little, a little Catholic boy there. Um, uh, did you always know you wanted to be the CEO of the West Side Future Fund? What was it? What was the first thing? You, what did you want to be when you were a kid? What did you, when little John, what did he want to be when he grew up? No idea. <laughs> when, when I graduated from college, actually, I didn't know what I majored in political science. Yeah. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had gotten interested in at the time in politics and at the time because of the nuclear arms race, I got real interested in, huh. you know, nuclear freeze movement, et cetera. Um, and so, and I was, well, given we've been talking about my father, my estrangement may not be a complete surprise that I, at the time I was seeing a therapist <laughs> when I was a high school senior. And I remember him saying, suggesting, cause I was kind of pondering what to do when I graduated from college. He was like, why don't you move to, to DC, a senator from Georgia had just been elected as a Democrat, a guy named Weish Fowler. He said, you know, and he, I guess, had some connections to his office. I, you know, maybe you can get a, write you a note, maybe you can get a job working for, for Senator Weish Fowler. And it's like, okay. <laughs> uh, and the man, a buddy of mine, actually, his father was a, was, had been, until recently, had been a congressman. So we packed up his Monte Carlo at the time and drove up to DC not have, you know, just aspiring to, to work on the Hill. We were quickly humbled because it was hard to find a job. You drove uh, to DC before you had, usually people yeah, don't, they, get, they secure their the internship yeah. first and then go. Yeah, his father had an apartment, so we stayed in his, <laughs> his dad wasn't there, so we stayed at his dad, my friend's dad's apartment, and then we looked for an apartment. Very nice. And neither one of us could find a job, so we ended up both waiting tables. Oh yeah. Um, while looking, and then intern, intern, to try to build experience to get to get a job um, on, on Capitol Hill. Uh, so, yeah, I was waiting tables. And then back at the time, you know, dating myself, a lot, maybe a lot of listeners like, who's he talking about? <laughs> um, Representative uh, Gephardt was running, for pre was running for president. Okay. And I, <laughs> I was alive, but I I do not recall. I don't actually remember. <laughs> yeah. No, we're, we're digging deep. So yeah, that's, that's how I, I started. The restaurant you were, you said you waited at tables. Is that is that restaurant still there in DC? Yes, it's called Bull Feathers. Yeah, okay, I've been to Bull Feathers. Yeah, that's cool. That's a good. If you're looking for an in, for a Capitol Hill internship, I guess that's where you go wait tables, right? It was. It was. Uh, I, I heard back in the day that was a real um, hangout spot for for big time. It probably still is politicals and stuff. Yeah, um, and my buddy worked at a place called the Hawk and Dove. And I oh, yeah, there. sure, the Hawk and Dove. 
Yeah. Uh, I actually, I used to go to the Akhenda pretty regularly. Uh, and uh, I was actually there one night uh, when a congressman came in, all hopped up on Ambien, started buying drinks for everybody. And he told Hello. us, and then he, then he started screaming about how he has to go vote. I got to go vote. And he got in his car and went and crashed in the Capitol, into the Capitol building. You can look it up. <laughs> he made the papers and everything. But I was actually, I, was at, I used to go, I lived in the, over in the Eastern Market neighborhood. Hawkins is really well known. It's one of the more famous bars. And I think it might still be there. I'm not sure, actually. I haven't no, been to that side actually, of town in a while. My, my younger daughter just started law school up there. So I was up there helping her find a place. And I went for a run in that part of town there. Sure. There was the Hawkins Dove. <laughs> there. I couldn't believe it. And then it must have been fixed up by now. I, it was the it last time I was there. It was like 10 years same. ago. And it was in rough shape. Um, anyway, the, uh, it's very, I also. I have some similar, um, I, my first job was at a school in Vermont. I worked at a school for boys with learning disabilities and I was not good at teaching and several aspects of the job were frustrating to me. You need a lot of patience to work at a school in any capacity, let alone the teachers. I think they need infinite patience, but everyone who works there needs some, especially our boys were, had, um, they had learning disabilities or they had been through some trouble at home or whatever needed extra support. It's really good learning experience. One of the things I learned there is that I was, well, not a great teacher, but I was good at the fundraising. One of the things they had me do is I would give um, parents tours of the school when they came to visit. We had a really beautiful campus in rural Vermont, pond and everything. And uh, there was also a blacksmith shop. That's how we taught the kids math. They didn't want to mm -hmm. learn math, but they did want to make a sword or an axe. And right. if you don't know math, your sword's going to be all crooked and weird. <laughs> Uh, and I was really good at giving the tours to the parents. And in fact, one time I actually got the, the parent to write a check on the tour, which was not at all part of my job. Um, but my boss there, he said something very similar to what you just said. He said, you know, DC is always hiring. They're always looking for fundraisers. Um, you know, you should, you should go down there. And I, I got my internship before I, before I packed up my sob and drove from Maine to DC, which I think is probably about the same distance. Um, the more snow on my trip. <laughs> and I had to deal with New Jersey's traffic. Um, it's actually the only time I ever drove through New Jersey in my life was the, when I went from Maine to D.C. to live there about 15 years ago. And um, uh, yeah, it's true. They're always hiring fundraisers. I was always able, once I got actually good at fundraising, you know, getting a job there became pretty easy. I was working a lot. Never actually had my Hill internship or anything. It was always sort of the other part of town over there. We're always no folks and things. So you eventually did get... A hill position? I did. You, I did started, you work for that senator you meant? Weish Fowler? No, Weish Fowler. No. Yeah, sorry, he, I, 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 I forgive me. I have not heard of him. <laughs> I do remember he, you mentioned, sorry, to um, had a couple, I had a thing I want to follow up on. You mentioned nuclear um, proliferation, or not, I guess nuclear non-proliferation was your interest. As I vaguely recall, wasn't, isn't that a big issue of Sam Nunn? Isn't he also from Georgia? Yeah, U.S. Senator, and then he wasn't that his like primary that. focus. Is that is that a coincidence? Is that why you were interested in it? No, I you know I was interested in it because at first when I kind of learned, I still remember this as a kid learning that the Soviet Union had missiles pointed at us and if they fired them in a in a short amount of time. Yeah, you know, would be annihilated. And and I at the time thinking, well, why would like why they want to. And we don't even know each other. Right. <laughs> I'm not never, mad at them. I've never met them. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 so that kind of got me from that that it would just sound as, in my own head was so crazy that something like that could happen. 
Um, <laughs> yes, it is. Um, similar, I mean, Maine is where Loring Air Force Base is, which is the closest Air Force Base in the in the U.S. to Moscow. And it's for, I don't know if they still have the nukes there, but that's where our nukes were pointed at. We had them, we had, that was the largest stockpile and it was all there. That was sort of, most Mainers were aware that they were there, right? And all that. Um, and then also, and then in the red, in the hunt for red October, that's where they hide the submarine at the end in Maine, in one of our, in one of our fjords. So that's, that was my own, like my own growing up, I was thinking about some, a lot of the same stuff. And there's, and in DC, that issue still exists, still people working on nuclear non proliferation There's been a lot of issues um, over my 15 years in D.C. that were issues when I moved there and remain issues. Some of them have even gotten worse. Um, and we will, uh, one of those issues is housing. So deep. So we're going to get into some of your current work now. Thanks very much for talking about your your background. I have very, very interesting um, uh, to hear about, uh, you know, how other people grow up. I imagine your childhood had just in general had, it was similar to mine in many ways, and professor parents and uh, all that, but just less. You had less snow, and you wow. knew what and you knew what soccer was. We didn't. It's not something that <laughs> right. nor, northern Mainers have a whole lot of. I didn't know what skiing was, so there you go. You didn't. You really didn't know what it was. I mean, I never did it. <laughs> I had like soccer was like I was vaguely aware there was a sport where you can't use your hands. That was the like, that was the extent of what I knew about it. Hockey was the really big thing up there, and I was not good at it, but I made I did my best. Um, so. Uh, you were there in DC for a while and then eventually you go back to Atlanta. Uh, I'm actually considering moving back to Maine myself at the moment. So I'd love to hear, like, how did you make, how did you decide to go back to go back home? Well, when I was working in DC, I initially started with interest in uh, international issues. And then I ended up one of my first job on my second job working for a Georgia congressman. I actually represented the counties that I had grown up, had lived. Hmm. And through that office got involved in different local issues, you know, around, uh, primarily around, you know, infrastructure and water issues at the time. And then, you know, kind of using that office, the leverage of the, of the office was able to affect change. Hmm. Uh, and, and then some of the other issues in, in DC Right back to some of the things they're still t talking about, i.e., <laughs> the deficit or other others. You name it, yeah. Um, that I felt like, well, am I really having, you know, an, an impact? Like, what? How am I really making a, a contribution? Unless you're really in the stratosphere on some of those issues in terms mm -hmm. of who you're working for. So part of the going back to Atlanta was okay. I care about Atlanta because I grew up there, and and for me, I just want to. I mean, back to a soccer metaphor. I I, I kind of want to know how I made a contribution to the score. Um, yep. and so that, when I, when I finished up at my grad work, then going back to Atlanta, again, I didn't have a job and I went back to Atlanta, but <laughs> you know, something that I could at least tell myself was, was helping to contribute to a, you know, a better city. Uh, yeah, very exciting. I, I, I feel largely the same. Um, I have sometimes global impact, right? I've invited, we, we give feedback to proposals and do other things, or maybe someone listens to the podcast and that helps them. It's very difficult for me to see the result of my own work from, from DC with at the scale that it is at. Uh, and uh, it does sometimes seem like, you know, you go home to your local, your locality, um, that you could have more impact, 
if you're actually working in the in the region that you're that you're from. I think it's a really important point. We do uh, it is something that I see a lot in the proposals that we read. Is a lot of people try to they because right if you turn on the news right that's global that's international. It seems like the whole world is all one right. So lots of times when people are putting their solution first putting their solutions together there target is the globe right i read a lot of proposals that start off with like there's four billion people in the world that are disconnected from the internet right i'm like are you you're gonna do you know how many four billion people is <laughs> you think you're personally gonna like help all four billion like that's just sort of beyond your scale sir right uh atlanta's a large city you're not going to be able to impact all the citizens of atlanta right? and that's okay you're going to be able to help a lot of them um right and you'll be doing that through the uh, currently, you're doing that through the Westside Future Fund. And according to their uh, website, the Westside Future Fund is a nonprofit formed by Atlanta's public, private, and philanthropic partners who believe in the future of Atlanta's West Side and are committed to helping historic neighborhoods revitalize and develop into a community Dr. King would be proud to call home. Um, very nice. Um, how do you... So you can't ask Dr. King, how do you, how do you, um, how do you determine what he would be proud of? Well, the good news is he—he he wrote some stuff down, gave speeches. You have some source yeah, materials. He, yeah, he spoke <laughs> an awful lot about. I've heard some of them. Yeah, <laughs> spoke a lot about it, and I—I I mean, the thing for me about Dr. King, in terms of my, you know, lessons and learnings, and by no way am I what a, a kind of a scholar in that, but mm -hmm. and having read and listened, is he was focused on you know, both the, the what and the how, right? So if you want to call the what kind of the, the basics in terms of, you know, someone having support to live a good life, right? Because after he, the Civil Rights Act passed, he very much turned his attention to poverty mm -hmm. um, and was, you know, planning to, um, and talked a lot of, a lot about those issues in his, the last book he wrote, you know, Chaos, Our Community. Mm -hmm. And so that, so the so that the what, but then also what I, you know, what I find personal inspiration is, is, is how, you know, cause you know, as a minister, he was, you know, what was primarily a minister people often forget he would, you know, first and foremost, a, a spiritual leader talk about God all the time. Yes. Um, and, and, and the one thing that I do appreciate, you know, in terms of, uh, some of his, his own lessons, but in you know, being someone who really practiced you know, what he preached in terms of, you know, love and, and agape love, you know, spiritual love. And what I always found remarkable, especially as, you know, growing up in Atlanta and in the South, it, is here's a person who encountered all the brutality of white supremacism, right? And, and had, and ultimately was assassinated, but through all of that still, even to those who oppressed him and hated him and, and ultimately wanted to kill him, um, and his family, for, you know, not just him, his family, his friends, you know, preached, you know, love. And so that the how that he preached to say, how are we going to get to a better place? You know, the, the how, right? So that, I find that very, because he'll, he'll talk about the need for like a mindset change in terms of how we, you know, relate to one another, mm -hmm. connect to one another. So I think when, you, when I think about what would make him proud is both what we're getting done and how we're getting it done. Um, yes, well said. The um, I talk about Dr. King uh, with uh, proposal authors sometimes, and one of the things I remind them is that 
he had to fundraise to do the work that he does. Lots of times we don't think about him as a fundraiser, uh, but he was a very good one. Raised millions of dollars for civil rights causes. The um, Montgomery bus boycott had a budget of over a million dollars, the organization behind it, and he was the one who raised all of that money. And I find that when I'm, especially when I'm talking to fundraisers, struggling fundraisers, it's important to remind them of that, or particularly people who are frustrated with fundraising and who might be more interested in, I guess, the what, right? Sort of just like generally talking about the problem in inspiring terms and, and, and you know, but the, the, he also got to the how, and that is something that we work through with proposal authors all the time. It's something that funders want to see. Some funders want to see very specific metrics, especially around issues of houses, housing, like numbers of people housed, right? So are there, and I get, you can't be like, you know, doctor, we, <laughs> there is no such thing as like pride units, right? So like once we accomplish this work, like the Dr. King's pride goes up 0.5 pride units, right? But there are there metrics, quantifiable things that you are tracking with your work there? Yeah, so for the West Side Future Fund, you know, we're directly, you know, tracking our own housing metrics, which is number of units we have, high quality units that are affordable, which we define as you don't pay more than 30% of your gross income in rent if it's a rental. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I've been asked so to we, prove that I, <laughs> sometimes you get asked to like prove that your income is, is considerably more than that, the, um, which I find, I've found frustrating a few times because when you run a nonprofit like mine, income is not necessarily something that you have. The, um, but um, so yeah, you've got, uh, you, you, you do have a very specific approach. There's numbers, there's people, you have, probably have a monitoring and evaluation team, right? Tracking all of these things. And um, there is a, there is um, inspiring language that gets used, right? That sort of talks about revitalizing communities, right? And families and, um, and that's those sorts of things. But then there's also, like very sort of business type quantifiable description of how the improvement is going, right? The both com- both types of um, talk happening at the organization, right? Yeah, I remember to your point, probably my second year of my job, right, right around in there. I've been here in a little over five years and I was seeing some, you know, kind of a senior Atlanta business leader, um, a, you know, great guy who's a ch- chairman of a bank. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, went through and I, you know, back to some of the previous work I had done was, you know, using PowerPoint slides and this mm-hmm. metric, that metrics, and kind of went through our strategy and where we were and got the end of it. And because he was someone I respect and also trust, I said, well, how, you know, what do you think of my presentation? Like, what do you, how, what? he said, you, you know, John's, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the, what of it is, you know, great, but there's no inspiration in this. There's no, hmm. yeah. The, you, you need to, you, you spoke to my mom, but you didn't speak to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, it was great advice. Cause then I'm like, you know, thank Cause then it was going out and really getting, you know, testimonies of folks we were working with and others that could speak to the heart. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a great early lesson for me because I had really, my previous work really had just really sharpened the approach of, you know, focusing on the mind, so to speak. I think it's a great lesson uh, for everybody. For everybody listening, I think no matter what work you're doing, particularly if you're writing proposals, trying to raise money, or just in general working at a nonprofit, we do need both of these conversations. Uh, I sometimes call it, uh, so there's this good, mor- good Morning America, right? And then there's 60 Minutes. 
And we have to have both programs. You got to do the long form, hard hitting journalism that exposes, right, the bad. And then, but also people have to wake, wake up and, and get inspired to start their day each morning, right? It can't be all one or the other. Some organizations can be just one. There are like purely inspiring, like Make-A-Wish Foundation, for instance. It's, right. it's, 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 they don't have the kind of uh, people housed metrics, right? But they still raise a lot of money because that inspiration means is very meaningful to a lot of people. Um, and uh, I think this is this is just a it's a very important lesson, particularly for people who are fundraising to think about. And and I think you know, uh, with you there, right? You probably you probably talk to some people where you're going to want to lean heavy on the inspirational stuff, and others where you're going to want to lean heavy on the on the numbers. As CEO of the organization, uh, which do you which are you do you find yourself doing more often? That's I probably. That's a great question. I don't know if you're really thinking through because it depends on, you know, on the audience that I'm. You make sure to know who you're talking to and come up yeah. with the appropriate. So, so for example, uh, you know, a lot of our call it angel money, so to speak. When, when we first launched, we had plans, but no results. <laughs> yeah. So folks had to. That's true for pretty much everybody. You can't, you can't have results until you start. Exactly. But, you know, and some of the early funding came from, you know, key, some key Atlanta corporations. Yeah. And so we're about five years. And so I've been recently revisiting with some of the CEOs and, and so I have, you know, 30 minutes and I really focus on, you know, the results with them because that's, they're, they're appropriately so they're using often shareholder money as philanthropy. They, they want to know, you know, you got to talk about mm-hmm. ROI. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I use a little bit of inspiration at the end, as opposed to when I'm doing, um, you know, we do tours now of the work in the neighborhoods. And when I'm giving a tour, it will be heavy on what I'd say inspiration, because those are more individual donors who um, are, are more, you know, yes. want to be inspired, with, you know, to kind of give their personal gift. It's when you're giving an individual donor a tour of the site, that is when you lean heavy on the inspiration. Yeah. Unless they happen to be asking a lot of questions about numbers. Yeah, because one thing I learned too about philanthropy, right? Nearly most of all of people in philanthropy, I don't think, if your basic necessities aren't met, chances are you're not a real big philanthropist. Right? Right. It's very human, right? You want to take care of yourself, care of your family. But once you're at a point like I have kind of whatever you define as more than enough, so to speak, yeah. okay, well, what do I want to spend my money on? Do I want to spend my money on? really good meal, do I want to spend money on another car, do I want to spend money on another big, but if you're going to spend, chances are you're not going to spend your money on something to feel bad. Like, let me write it, let me write a check on something and just feel horrible. Like, right. Let me, let me pick that. Right. So that's what I've come to appreciate it is, is when people write a check, they want to feel good. Just like if you wrote a check going to a five-star, I mean, I don't mean that to sound, but I've come to appreciate people want to be inspired and they want to feel good when mm-hmm. they're writing, you know, getting their money away. Um, yes, absolutely. And I, so the one way I've described it, right, is you are, it's sales, but instead of selling them a product, you're selling them change. This change they want to see in the world, they, and, and they're going to use some of their excess money, right, to try to purchase that change. Um, and that change, yeah, yeah, and I think, particularly on an issue like yours, it, it must be a constant balance to between, you know, inspirational talk. You don't want to go overboard 
right? You don't want to start like exaggerating your impact, right? Or like getting into what, what my father would have called happy horse shit, right? Um, right? But you also don't want to be too dire. The problem of housing is, is, is quite dire, right? You get people living on the street, families being ruined, things like that. You don't want to go too negative on it either. That doesn't get people excited to, to, to support the program. Difficult um, uh, tightrope to walk. The, yeah. But I mean, I think if you're going to solve an intractable problem like housing, right, it's going to involve walking tightropes. Yeah, and, and you know, our, our, in our work, where we are in Atlanta, you know, is right at the intersection of, of race. Mm, yes. So the neighborhoods that we are focused, um, you know, after the Civil War, and uh, remember Atlanta was burned because of its supply usefulness to the Confederacy. Uh, and after the Civil War, when the federal troops were still here, there were limited places that blacks were allowed to own land. One of those places was on the west side when the when the federal troops left, right? Um, then the south, you know, locked down again with segregation. Again, there was so the west side, you know, populated as black neighborhoods, um, and uh, but were you know all the things people are now much more familiar with redlining and the discrimination, et cetera, all that. Um, back in 1960, the neighborhoods were about 50,000 overwhelmingly black. They depopulated down to about 15,000. But now, you know, the affordable housing is also interlaced with issues of historical, you know, rectifying historical injustice of people mm -hmm. who weren't able to own houses or land or it was taken. So one of the things we, we do not only with our housing is we have a, 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 um, a program around um, community retention guidelines. So, that, so who gets our housing? You know, people from the neighborhoods, connect the neighborhoods, went to one of the historically black colleges. So that, that part of the narrative is not just about affordable housing, but who benefits from that affordable housing and the why behind it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so in, in preparing for the interview, I because I'm not from Atlanta, I reached out to a few folks who are, and I just sort of generally asked them what they were. I, I, I mentioned Westside Future Fund and just sort of generally chatted with them. The one thing that came up, uh, I, I talked to three different folks, people whose proposals we've reviewed from Atlanta. So these are folks who are actively fundraising in Atlanta. Uh, their main interest was on just what you said, right? The like, all right, how is this actually helping the people who have historically lived in those communities or the or have like attended the historically black colleges or like the actual culture and flavor of that part of town? Because all three of them who, who come from different parts of Atlanta, they all were pretty clear that like that is a that's a part of town that does have culture and roots and uh, that they should that they should be maintained. Um, the um, Atlanta does have um, history of some successful community revitalization projects. My father is, in fact, a golf course historian. He's written a couple books about country clubs and golf courses. And once upon a time, as I understand from him, the first thing he mentioned was that the East Lake Country Club and the revitalization of that neighborhood is generally considered a, um, a case study of successful community revitalization. Um, you, that's different. It's East Lake, I assume. That's the east part of Atlanta. Different neighborhood. Correct. But it seems to me that you're... Um, uh, your approach is somewhat similar because it does it sort of coincides with the with a, a, another sports another sport the the, the sporting venue uh, the Mercedes Benz Stadium mm -hmm. um, and you also got a lot of right high level important people of Atlanta involved like Bobby Jones was involved in the East Lake revitalization for golf historians for, if you're not a golfer he's one of the more famous. He's probably the most, I'm certainly the most famous golfer from Atlanta and one of the most famous golfers of all time. 
Um, and he was also a lawyer in the Atlanta area. Um, uh, but um, um, obviously neighborhoods are different. And looking through the creation of the Westside Future Fund, um, I see I saw a few things uh, that um, I'm I'm eager to to, to chat through. Uh, one is that you were involved in the creation of it. You were the executive director director of something called the Atlanta Committee for Progress, uh, and that the Westside Future Fund is what I think. And feel free to correct me. What some would call a P three, a public private partnership, because there's corporations, governments, and, and private funders. Um, so can you, I'd love to talk, I'd love to hear you talk about uh, how that all came about, right? The formation of a public-private partnership is, sounds complex to me. Those are three different types of organizations with different goals and things that they're looking for, right? Different levels of metrics or inspiration that they'll want to hear, right? Uh, and it's neat to me that you were actually there involved in the creation of it and now running the eventual organization. So talk me through the last, like, I guess it's, you say Westside Future Fund's been around five years. I suppose it probably took a couple of years to get a, to get that all together. So I guess talk to me about the last seven or eight years, particularly the first few years and how you got it all, how, got all the stakeholders involved. So early on when I was running the Atlantic Committee for Progress, when then Mayor Kasim Reed, along with Arthur Blank, announced the location of the new stadium, because at the time they had been planning the dome, time for a new stadium. Where was it going to be? There were some, and they when they announced, which was you know right next to the current one, which has now been torn down. They also announced, you know, the neighborhoods immediately west of the stadium, which were some of Atlanta's poorest, you know, ones we're focused in, you know, to refocus on. Those neighborhoods, and and the time the mayor planned fifteen million of city funds, Arthur Blank pledged fifteen million of philanthropy. Just to, for foundation. the for folks perhaps not from Atlanta, Arthur Blank is the founder of Home Depot. Yep, and he Thank made you. he made some excess wealth from that. He made company. some excess, some very well documented <laughs> excess wealth on the Forbes billionaire list. So yes, yeah, so he has his own his own family foundation, Arthur Blank Arthur and Blank Family Foundation. And, and so, at the time, we, we were running the ACP, and I remember I went to Penny McPhee, who then was the president and CEO of the foundation, saying, because the corporate, some of the corporate CEOs on the ACP were interested, like, well, how do we help? Like, what can we, how can we help with that? And hmm. one talked to Penny and said, do you, do you all have a, a plan? And she's, would you like us to kind of work on this? And she went and talked to him, like, well, well yeah, we, we, we would. So then we, which was kind of a methodology of the ACP, we put together a task force. It was very quiet, but a couple of key ACP members, along with some pro bono consultant to think through, because we had a view, it's going to need some kind of organization to drive it long term. It's not a short term fix, so to speak. Right. So, and so we went through, looked at different organizations, learned a lot to your earlier point about from Eastlake and then all the work they've done through their model called Purpose Built um, and learned about. And then we looked. So the last wise future fund then was launched by then Mayor Kasim Reed and some of the, the corporate community uh, right at the end of 2014. Um, and then some of the startup funding came from ACP companies. Um, but it was really, it, it kind of then back ended into the community involvement, right? It, it didn't start that way, right? But, but you know, started it as a partnership between really the, the, the mayor and the, and the key leadership of the core community of Atlanta, to, along with Arthur Blank, to focus in on these neighborhoods. Um, okay, so, uh, so Arthur Blank wants a new stadium. Mm-hmm. And the mayor also wants one. In general, there was a long, there's a decent history of stadiums improving 
neighborhoods. We when we built the in DC when we built the um, with the Nationals play that neighborhood um, improved drastically and quickly. Uh, and I imagine there were NGOs involved with that. So you, the Atlanta Committee of Progress is a like is it mostly CEOs of businesses working on right trying to keep Atlanta progressing? What, what yeah. was the mission there? CEOs and university presidents. Oh, okay. Some of the university, but it was. So they hear about the project with the stadium and they start asking you, right? How can we get involved with that? Correct. Uh, that's very, so one of the things I found that is that just because, you know, a guy like Arthur Blank runs a big foundation or like people or the, the someone's running a large foundation for, you mentioned you reached out to the professional that runs the foundation that works for um, uh, Mr. Blank. Um, they, uh, sometimes foundations don't, aren't as well networked as we imagine. Right. I think a lot of times in our minds, right, the big foundations, they know all the other foundations and they can like have convenings and do the work of this sort. But oftentimes I found that actually folks like yourself running right, NGOs that have advisory boards and things like that have a lot to offer to someone trying to do work of that sort. It sounds like that was the case. You came to them and you say, hey, I've got these CEOs, I've got these university presidents, I've done this great work on this organization. How can we help you and your goals? That's a good position to be in when you're approaching a philanthropist. You're not asking for things. You came there with right? A team ready to help. Well, see, it's even better at the time she was on the board of the ACP. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but you had, you were established in Atlanta, in the community, right? Well, you had done the work of becoming well-networked and getting the appropriate people involved, which allowed you to dive into the conversation. Correct. Yeah. Now the ACP, the, the board of the ACP is in university presidents, other business leaders, and also in the corporate CEOs are headquartered in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's the actual CEOs. It's not their, yeah. they, they themselves participate. Yeah, cool. Which, which gives, you know, marry that up with the mayor of Atlanta, right? That's some that's some serious leadership leverage, so to speak. Yes. I mean, that's what you need. The, um, uh, however, right, the mayor's changed. That guy's not mayor anymore, right? <laughs> I think maybe you've had a couple since then. What What is it, what, what is it like when, right, how are you affected by, like political change like that, does it um, does it affect the work of the organization? Do you have to change your approach when the administration changes? No, the the I mean the early the early risk and the you know to some of the folks sound like you might have checked in with in advance of this interview was given how this was launched, given the the way I look, you know when I came in, I was the second. Second executive director, and the first one left after six months. But was there a concern that this was, you know, a gentrification play, so to speak? Right. Yeah. Or, it, For those listening, know, John looks like a white guy. Right. I because <laughs> I am. I mean, that, that would if you were accurate. to picture a white guy, you're probably picturing very close to to, to John. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, yeah I and don't, this is a this is a neighborhood that is that Dr. King's from that is historically. But, yeah. So people were understandable. Why is this white guy yeah, going to be doing and this? And concerned that because of the, I mean, part of the challenge of when a neighborhood depopulates, because when we did, when we did the work, most of the folks that were still living in neighborhoods were renters from private investors. And so people that live in the neighborhood want the amenities of a well-established neighborhood, but then yeah. that has an unintended consequence of driving up real estate prices and pu- pushing people out. Um, yep. So a lot of the early work was in ensuring that that both from a policy and political perspective, it wasn't seen as helping benefit people who didn't have historical ties to the neighborhood. So w- once our programs were, were rolling out in such a way that they didn't do that, 
get, you know, when, when I have to say when Keisha Lance Bottoms came on as mayor, she was very, you know, very supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we actually had a mayoral forum with the two runoff candidates on Friday, uh, Andrea Dickens and, and Felicia Moore. Both are very supportive. Uh, but that's because of the work, the what of the work that we're doing, mm. you know, both from a policy perspective and obviously from a political perspective. Both, both those things, I think, marry up well. You hold forums and the and the candidates come and you ask them questions? Yeah, well, I had a, a local reporter moderated. Her name is Rose Scott. She's um, a reporter at WABE, and she moderated the, the discussion between the two candidates. Very interesting. That, that's a, I think that's a, that's a, that's a really interesting thing for you to be doing. Um, keeps you relevant in the community. Uh, it's on mission, right? And if you, you, you get these, I've seen some of these can, can, uh, candidate forums in other communities become like, extremely powerful events, right? The, the, yeah. candidates, the candidates have to show up and answer your questions or they don't win, right? Yeah, no, it's a great a great way to, and, and also establishing, you know, alignment because the work that I'm doing, the philanthropy, they're raising philanthropy, as you know, is that we need the political, it would be very difficult if not impossible to do my job if we had the mayor of Atlanta was saying this is a bad idea. Yeah. Very challenging <laughs> right. to, to overcome, because yep. um, especially in the work that we're doing, a lot of, a lot of times it's, you know, traditionally people think of well, that's areas that government should be doing the work, right? So it's mm-hmm. it, it's it's having government participation is critical for what we're doing, because mm-hmm. otherwise people are like, why are we doing it if they're not at all participating, so to speak, from a public perspective. And I think you might also end up running into things where like you you, you would need the government. So like for instance, in D.C., we have a they, they currently. Um, I don't know all of the issues related to this, but they're they're um, a lot of the activists are talking about the encampment clear clearings, right? The like the government is coming and clearing these homeless encampments, right? And that's that's it's a government action taking place. So the NGOs can do all they want to oppose it, but they can't literally stop the police from right clearing the encampments. Right? Well, if you've got the mayor on your side, you can you have maybe you can't actually right. You don't get to tell the mayor what to do, but you've got the more access to my not and perhaps there is something in D.C. similar to what you're doing, but not to my knowledge. Um, the um, Since you spent some time here, I know you weren't, I don't, it doesn't sound like you were working on local issues up here, um, but um, what are some of the differences that you see between the two towns? I mean, they, some of them, some things are very similar, right? They're, they're capitals here, they're cap, it's, um, uh, sorry, not, um, not capital, but um, large, um, right, center for, a place that has headquarters, Right, you have large corporate headquarters. We usually have the, the government affairs division of those companies. <laughs> right, so every, all the big companies have an office in D.C. Um, so, and in fact, we're getting um, one of the world's largest companies is going to make their HQ two in our town soon. So we're going to become more of a corporate town. But we also we have historically black college Howard, uh, other universities there, uh, large black population. Um, right, the, they love Dr. King in both towns. Uh, what are some of the differences and similarities you see between DC and Atlanta? Well, it's been a bit, but what's not there? DC is on the news every day, so hopefully it's still true. No, but I, one thing I distinctly <laughs> remember about DC for me was one: whenever you walk into a, par- a party, or I would walk into a party and observe, folks mainly focused on what do you do. Yeah, and that's the DC question: added, What do you do? And yeah. and then oh, I work for such and such company. It's like, well, what position? Because everyone knew, like, are you, where do you, where do you fall? So that was an immediate, 
it was an immediate yep. classification of yep. your relative power in the city, right? Like, oh, you're just a measly legislative assistant as opposed to, you know, something else. Um, and the other thing that struck me, and it was probably amongst the circles I was in, is that everyone was there for their career, was there for their career, which I'm not, you know, no one was there to help DC be a better city. So that kind of that sense of community, like everyone was there for, you know, DC was just a way to get get to something else. So that was for a large, and I'm sure you're aware that that's a large, not because there are a lot of people who come there and are there for that reason and don't really treat it like home. In the back of their mind, they know they're going to be going somewhere else eventually, right? There is a local population. Oh no! <laughs> but you're right. If you when you come when you go there like we did, we both went there for the for professional reasons. Someone told us it was a good place to get work. There's lots of young people around the country that could told go to the capital city for work, right? The and we go there and we're not necessarily as locally focused while we're there. We're not as familiar with the local issues. For me, I came from Maine. You know how different DC is from rural Maine. Like it's basically unrecognizable. It was like going to a different planet. I was learning about all kinds of new stuff. I obviously I couldn't just dive in and start helping with local issues in the same way that I could in, in, in my hometown. In Atlanta, what's the, so that you're right, the, you've identified the DC question that has not changed. <laughs> people, you should, sometimes when I tell people I run a nonprofit, they're very interested in that. Other times they, I literally see the like life go out of their eyes and they walk away from me, right? The other thing I noticed is off, if you, when they work on the Hill, there's a lot of people who will just say, they're aware of the game you're talking about, so they just say, I'm on the Hill. I work on the Hill. It's very difficult to get even the name of the congressman or like what they do or work on or whatever. Um, what's the Atlanta question? What's the first, when you go to a party in Atlanta, what's the first question folks ask? They don't ask what you do? No, that's it. That's in there for sure. It's, um, Probably like you know where are you from? You know more about kind of a a lot of folks from Atlanta aren't. What's well, the same thing? I'm from Atlanta. A lot <laughs> yeah. of people moved here, so it's you know you know where are you from? Where do you live? Uh-huh. Is it Atlanta? You say Atlanta, but Atlanta. Oh, it's big. There's a lot of neighborhood pride, I imagine. Yeah, a lot of kind of sub areas, so to speak, or others. Yeah, so there's you know once you like where do you live? You 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 know. It says something to someone if you live in such and such neighborhood as opposed to some other such and such a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those would probably be some of the first. You know, you know, I'm not. We talked earlier about soccer. You know, football is <laughs> big in Atlanta. I didn't go to a football high school or a football college. Jeremy has no f- football college. So if you're if you're a man, sports is sports quickly gets into the conversations, which yes. I'm always coming up short on because I don't follow it as closely as some other people. Yeah, that's tough. It takes so I must, when I started running the nonprofit, I had to make some choices, right, about my my free what I do in my free time. One of the things that I did cut was being a sport a dedicated sports fan because of how much. I, one, I think the conversation is a little inane, <laughs> right? And and then the 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 only sports conversation I mean, I'm generally interested in is the like social justice stuff, and that's just all very frustrating. Uh, and you also regularly find out that like some of your heroes aren't actually very good people. Um, right. I grew up paying attention to John Gruden who recently turns out he's just not a good person. Probably hasn't been the entire time. Right. And, uh, you know, I wonder if, it, it, and I'll say I, my life is not any less full now that I don't follow sports as closely. Right. But I, I the, the folks I did talk to from Atlanta, they all mentioned sports. They all taught, they all wanted to talk about the Falcons or, um, right. That, that as I understand the, the Braves have won a championship, 
Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations to you for that. Yeah, very happy about that. Uh, I remember I was a I was briefly a Fairweather Braves fan back when the last time they won up they were in like '95 I think they won a championship. Right. I was like 13 or 14, and that was just a really. I remember all the pitchers were really good. Uh, it's just a really fun team to watch. Um, the um, uh, in general, one of the things that, that, that really came up to me, I think, in, in terms of big differences, is, is it's much larger in terms of population. Uh, and also that you do have, you have some of the world's largest, best-known companies headquartered, not just headquartered there, but act, but that actually care, that seem to care about Atlanta quite a bit, seem to be somewhat Atlanta-focused with their philanthropy and development plans. Yeah, and I think Atlanta seems to have a good, when I ran the ACP, one of the things because I would work with some of the, the corporate CEOs who weren't from Atlanta, but they would remark about that ethos that Atlanta had a very engaged, you know, corporate community. Mm -hmm. Do you find that, that that's that, that's obviously a big, you've got the, most of the big companies are involved with Westside Future Fund. Um, that's um, um, it's obviously very helpful but, I've, but corporations have bottom lines. My guess is they're not involved in this because they want to make less money, right? No, so it's not a long-term formula to be a... <laughs> yeah, I, it, in fact, even running the nonprofit as I do, I know that if you spend more money than you bring in, eventually you go out of business. <laughs> it's a mathematical reality for everyone, right? And so, and, and, and there are ways that philanthropy and development can improve a company's bottom line. It's not necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, there's ways that a company doing their business can improve outcomes and stuff. Companies employ people and, um, you know, give benefits and tuition and healthcare and um, all kinds of stuff. The, um, are there, uh, but again, the, the um, are there ways you find, um, uh, that you must, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to, to, to think of this question. Uh, do you engage with your donors that don't have a bottom line much differently than you, than you engage with your corporate partners? Do you find yourself talking to the corporate partners about their business? Yeah. Yeah. Corporate funders, especially those that are publicly traded. Yeah. I mean, they they respond. They have to. They have their. They have a fiscal responsibility, right? Because they're they're giving away literally shareholders, shareholders money. money that they're donating to you. Um, yeah. And so do, does that. You know, when they're, they typically are want to be public about it, and they typically want that to reinforce their own business, right? Mm -hmm. Which is absolutely nothing wrong with that, given where the money's coming from. So, as an example, we actually announced it yesterday. We were lucky enough to receive a $1.5 million charitable contribution from uh, Cadence Bank. Very nice. Um, and specifically for our home on the West Side program, they're, they're particularly interested in the down payment assistance part of it. But, but but serving this market is something they're very committed to doing. They actually talked to us about potentially opening a branch up in the neighborhoods. So it was terrible, but all, uh, you know, also you know, spoke to their own corporate commitment to, you know, to be, you know, serving this market in, the, in this part of town. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think that you know, there's a lot of folks fundraisers that would be very uncomfortable, like generally uncomfortable with that. Uh, I remember when I, I was working at a conservation organization a long time ago, when it first became trendy for conservation organizations to raise corporate dollars. Uh, for a very long time, conservation was anti-corporate, basically entirely anti-corporate, and much more like save the snow, save the snowy owl, right? 
There's those sorts of things from individual donors. Not for nothing, they did save the snowy owl. He's doing, they're doing just that, that species is doing just fine, but uh, they were able to raise a lot more money and they've started to have more impact. And I think this is an important part of reaching all of our climate goals was once they convinced companies that like sustainability could help them raise more money, right? If you like, this isn't just about saving these species and you do, you donating money and you making less money, right? You can actually make, your company can make more money with more sustainable climate practices. And that the, a lot of the NGOs changed their tech. And some conservationists were uncomfortable with that. That had been their opponent for a very long time. But I mean, there's a lot of people that would tell you that if you can make your opponent your ally, you'll be much more successful. And these are, and in general, these companies aren't bad. They're not evil enterprises, right? They just have a slightly different entity model and have to pay attention to their shareholders and other things, which allows them to have more capital, have more reach, get more done. And they make really yeah. great partners for somebody like you. But well, it does involve, it involves a different fundraising approach. Bring it back to one of your earlier questions about Dr. King. So Dr. King's quote, to kind of speaking this yeah, a little bit, sure. if hate does not drive out hate, only love drives out hate. Did he? Did Dr. King have a lot of corporate partners? Well, some of the folks that, to your earlier point, gave him yep. donations, you know, were were corporate. Yep. You know, so um, well, he would go. A lot. Of, I think everybody knows that he went around the country giving speeches, right? And everybody's aware Dr. King gave the occasional speech. At the end of the speech, he would often ask for money. Right. And I've actually seen there's some fundraising. There's a fundraising letter you can look up. It's in a it's in a museum or whatever. He wrote it to someone who ran a business. And in the letter, he mentions, like, I know your business is doing very well. Right. Imagine how well you would do when, like, all citizens are free. He, like, makes a really good, strong argument. And he's deliberately talking about the business, right? why this donation will help the guys, the guy with his business. And so if Dr. King thought it was appropriate, I think I don't think every people should be as. Um, as shy about it. Lots of times, though, nonprofit founders, people who go into the nonprofit space, did so because they don't, they didn't fit in the, they don't want to work in a corporate environment, right? The, a lot of the buzzwords and other things, uh, press release language and stuff. Is, and I think, it just in general, right, try to get over those things, find areas you can work with, right? Know where to put your foot down, other things. Makes a lot of sense to me that a local bank in Atlanta would want to be involved in your work, right? And particularly, you mentioned, right, the, one of the main programs you have is a down payment assistance program. So that's got to help the bank in some way, right? If you're helping yeah. folks do their well, mortgages they, they and their homes, their their one of their core businesses would be mortgages, right? So talk to me about how what how do you what do you you call it the down payment assistance program? Mm -hmm. How exactly does that work? So the down payment assistance is for those that qualify against our, you know, community retention guidelines. So that's first, and, and, and you also then need to qualify for underwriting. So underwriting means you qualify for a mortgage. So folks that, you know, making 55, 60, you know, 45, typical people talking to workforce housing can qualify for underwriting, but that mortgage is typically around 200, 210, somewhere in there. But given where land prices are on the West side and, and bill costs, that doesn't put you into home. Mm -hmm. And so when we're, you know, putting together uh, folks that were qualifying, you know, qualifying for mortgages, um, the down payment assistance programs offered by, you know, the, the, the city and the public sector typically would total between 20 and 30, but it wasn't enough to close that gap. You know, we need to get it closer to 300,000. And so mm -hmm. then we layered in with our philanthropy on top of the public down payment assistance, you know, depending on someone's um, income, we'll, we'll provide up to $60,000 on top of the public. So you're typically you're looking at potentially 80K, 90K worth of buy down 
between the public funds and our and our and our philanthropy. The other thing about our philanthropy is, and a lot of the folks because our, of our guidelines, our guidelines are first-time homebuyers, mm. and that our down payment assistance burns down over ten years at ten percent a year. So after if you if you sold halfway through, you got to pay us half of it back. But at the end of ten, so that's an enormous. And you're keeping people in the community that way. Well, keeping and also helping people you know, move back. So one of our um, uh, single-family homes, women who qualify for underwriting, you know, was a Spelman graduate, graduate of Spelman College, which is one of our, yep. our criteria. Another one was a, a Morehouse. So as we, you know, back to repopulating the neighborhoods, right, which is part of, you know, given the neighborhoods depopulated, you wanted to, to repopulate, but yeah, bringing people that have a store connection to the neighborhoods back into it. Very interesting. Um, the um, uh, I have a, a, a few more questions for you, and um, I'll let you uh, I'll let you um, get on with your day. You've got a lot of work over there on the west side. Um, uh, we talked a little bit about your uh, when you were forming. You said you did the research. We I mentioned East Lake and stuff. Um, are there were there organi- pre existing organizations or efforts that you looked to? when you were forming the Westside Future Fund, or are there any now that you continue to look, look to as peer leaders in the field? They can be, these could be organizations outside of Atlanta or they don't have to be in DC or anywhere. Are there particular, are there housing related nonprofits or others that you admire, look to for inspiration? One that gave us enormous, was after we formed and we were really trying to, you know, unpack the, you know, development part of the model, the housing part of the model. We learned um, a tremendous amount from an organization called 3CDC in Cincinnati. So what is it called? 3CDC. 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 Okay. And they focus on a particular neighborhood in in Cincinnati in their downtown area called Over the Rhine. And what we learned from them, they had primarily um, through their corporate community led by Proctor, you know, created a corporate, basically a corporate backed impact fund that, that underwrote you know, three CDCs acquisition development activities by the corporate community providing funds, but they want those funds back. They weren't philanthropy. And so they were, we learned from that. They were very generous in helping us, um, you know, duplicate that in Atlanta. And so we got 10 Atlanta corporations that take cash off their balance sheet where they want a return of their capital, but not on their capital. Hmm. And so, and, and it's also very flexible and providing, you know, we actually advise it and it also, you know, provides very, very low cost loans to the West Side Future Fund, as well as some other partners in the community that really amplifies the impact of the philanthropy and the public funds. But that was something we really are grateful and we learned from 3CDC. Hmm. I mentioned earlier, you know, all the learning we're taking from Purpose Belt in terms of the kind of holistic approach and the, the, that we're doing. Um, That's right. So people in Cincinnati helped you. Find yeah. find housing for folks on the west side of Atlanta. That's pretty neat. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because you know, Atlanta, the, um, you know, way for corporations to basically use cash on their balance sheet that they're not, you know, maybe in an investment account or something. That's how. Um, so it's a great way for them to help without without, you know, showing up on the P and L as a as a donation. Yes. Uh, speaking of donations, sometimes the the folks that donate to you are right just simply donating the money. Arthur Blank makes. Don't, he's donated to his foundation. The money is—he's not expecting the return, um, right? right? Uh, corporate partners might make a donation and not 
technically be getting a return on that donation, but they'll be looking somewhere else in their business to see improvement yeah. or, or other and, things. And all of them have done both. So a, a, a huge investor in our work is the Home Depot. Yes. So the, the Home Depot has con contributed, you know, philanthropy to our housing program. They've and also contributed philanthropy to other not for so the, com the company contributes. The corporate and the foundation set up by the founder. The home, no, no, the Home Depot foundation, which it's is the, the corporate, corporate foundation. foundation. But he also, you mentioned he has a, he has an individual foundation. Yeah. Well, Arthur Blank's gone, you know, he left Home Depot probably 15 years ago. Sure. Um, but he, you know, Mr. Blank is, you know, had a, a second run of a very successful business career with the Falcons. He owns PGA stores. Um, he owns, you know, so he, his, he's got his own family foundation, but that's from his own net worth. Um, but you know, we've had support from the Delta airlines corporate foundation from the Coca-Cola foundation, you know, as well as independent, you know, individuals and independent foundations. Interesting to me that the, 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 the I imagine somewhat different when you're to, the home Depot foundation versus Arthur M blank foundation, even though, right. Ultimately the same individual he has been, he moved on now with the, with the family. That's much more I, about his family and. The perhaps other family members, but they're looking for Home Depot, like we said, is a company that foundation is set up with a very specific mission to, to complement the company. Uh, good for you for getting into both, both <laughs> for getting in with both. Um, it, it doesn't have to be a current donor outside of Atlanta or whatever. Is there a particular uh, donor like Mr. Blank, right? Lots of donors are using multiple vehicles these days, being creative with their approaches, trying to do things like, you know, in addition to buying the to, to redoing the stadium, also thinking about the community, like lots of donors are thinking in that sort of way. Is there any uh, donor foundation uh, that you particularly admire? Perhaps it isn't funding you now that you would like to, right? If you want to <laughs> call out a prospect or whatever, but is there anyone who's giving or approach to giving that you particularly admire? Oh, you're asking me to pick favorites among children given all <laughs> I mean, you can... Um, you can, if you want, you list one of your own donors. I'm sure they'll like to hear that, right? But <laughs> um, the, 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 we do have a decent number of um, philanthropists and program offices and foundations that listen to the show. Are there any practices that you'd like to, um, that you like, that you'd like to tell them about? Practices. Um... It seems to me. So I, I, perhaps I'm not asking that question correctly. You have um, done a lot of really interesting work. A lot uh, traditionally, funders have a very specific approach. So they might be like, "We fund homeless shelters in Atlanta, right?" And we've been doing it since the '70s or whatever, right? You come in with a like slightly different approach. It's working with the companies or whatever. A traditional foundation that uh, doesn't take meetings. Uh, right, uh, doesn't accept invitations, right, and, and other things. It would have been very difficult for, and right, very difficult for you to get in front of them. Perhaps impossible, right? The in order to get Westside Future Fund created, you there were there must have been folks willing to hear different to hear about different approaches, perhaps things that they had not heard of, right? One of the things that's true here on front of the list is a lot of people think that if they could just get in front of the donor, right, to tell them their new approach, right, they would hear it. Right. And that, that makes things very difficult for funders, right? You want to have a good strategy. You want to say, here's what, here's the kinds of things we like to fund. But you also do want to, you don't want to close the door to new ideas. 
right? Like, what are you, are you I realize you've got your shoes busy. Um, your, your, your agenda is probably full running the Westside Future Fund. But if you were an Arthur Blank type philanthropist, right, how would you be going about, how would you be going about things? In terms of giving away money? Yeah, would you set up a family foundation? Would you, uh, would you be focusing on housing? What, what, what oh, kinds yeah. of what kinds of things would you do as a mega billionaire donor? Well, if I were a mega big billionaire donor, you know, whose approach I really admire is, um, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife. Um, Yet she just gave a large round of grants. I'm still holding out hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, could be few did you get did you get i mean it might have been she gave to a lot of organizations i haven't read the full list you did you get any money from her? Fund, but she gave to historic about colleges that are in our yes yes read. she gave to, i know she gave to clark spellman and morehouse she gave several of our partners and in fact one of the groups we reviewed this year got 12 million dollars from her like a week before i gave them the feedback Right. And I might wonder, like, are they going to read this feedback? They just got $12 million. What do they want all my critical feedback for? <laughs> but it was a sort of, that was very interesting. She came out of nowhere. Um, most of the organizations weren't expecting these large gifts. Uh, and um, usually if you get, if you receive $12 million, you've been talking to the foundation for a long time and figuring out how that works. Um, and you, you um, uh, and I think she's going to continue giving like that for a while because she has more money to give. Well, yeah, man, I love her approach because she clearly has some passion areas that speak mm -hmm. to her that she wants to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, objectively speaking, the areas she's targeting really do need help. She's not given to institutions that already have multi-billion dollar endowments. Um, you, I don't you know, think she did. She might have. But, but uh, yeah, well, you look at some If she did, it would have been the, like, the center for this at Stanford, right? Not, the, yeah. not some, someone, that, someone that doesn't have access to the huge... And she's not after as far as any kind of any kind of you know, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with it, but you know, any ego, re ego recognition. I did you know? notice that there were a lot of organizations that got grants did give prep issue press releases and such thanking, right. uh, thanking the donor. I don't uh, There was, might've been all spontaneous. It might've been a condition uh, of the gift or whatever. I, and again, there isn't, if you're giving that much money away, you should get the recognition. You want people to know what you're doing. You're, you're trying to make some change. The, the, the anonymous donors can, is a strategy that can work for a lot of folks, but there's also something to be said for talking about your giving as well. Sure. I think she probably inspired other people to give to those organizations. Yeah. And, and as a, I didn't receive one of the gifts, but they're, I know from, at least from reading about it, they're, they're unrestricted. So once the money yes. shows up, she trusts, she trusts them to do the right thing with it. Yes. Um, so Absolutely. That's cool too. Unrestricted dollars are terrific. Everybody likes that. I imagine and, you have some restricted grants. Most of our grants are restricted. Yeah, but you're doing very specific work, and you they get restricted after long conversation with the donors, and they're restricted in a way that you're okay with, right? Yeah, I mean, and to some extent, we we developed the program to speak to that, knowing it was going to be restricted. So, how mm -hmm. you know, knowing most funders don't like to just give unrestricted gifts. I believe it is so. the majority of grants still from foundations are restricted in some way, which is largely because of medical research. Yeah, that's the number one issue funded. And obviously they restrict it to the specific disease or whatever. Um, the, during the pen, one of the things about restricted funds, is I like to remind all donors, say donors that might be listening, if you put the restrictions on it in the first place, you can also remove those. So like if a global pandemic comes along and you want to free up some of the restricted dollars, you can do that. So restricting isn't as like restrictive as we might imagine, they're more like like guidelines. Or the, the, the SEC doesn't come along and enforce these restrictions. They're between the 
the donor and the giver. And that is, in fact, exactly what happened during the pandemic. A lot of people unrestricted and eased funds and, and, and allowed for change. And that's a very good practice for donors. Uh, but but it is um, uh, uh, Mackenzie Scott giving away that much money all in large unrestricted gifts is very interesting. I imagine when you give personally, uh, and hopefully you give personally, I've never had anyone on the show be like, no, I do not give. <laughs> um, what, car- what kind of things do you support personally with your personal dollars? Giving Tuesday is, I believe, a week from today. So you'll want to be thinking about this. Um, well, I think it's important given I'm out there, but I give to the West Side Future Fund. Do you do? Yes. I also give to unfunded list. Because <laughs> um, if I'm asking other people to believe in it. Yeah, of course. Know. So, you know, and then once I, um, another thing I do, do too, because, you know, learning more about, because um, I live in the neighborhoods, I live in a neighborhood called Vine City, but, you know, learning about um, some of the, you know, challenges that individuals face. So, I, you know, like I'll just, kind of, you know, help people that I meet mm. work on, you know, more, more kind of granular focus as opposed to a big organization. You help folks in the neighborhood individually. Yeah. Like as an example, you don't get a, you don't get a um, deduction for that. No, that's um, <laughs> but like uh, my neighbor is her name is well maybe I don't think she'd mind but I, I won't say her name but she's sure. a, in her eighties and she lives alone and when I met her uh, one thing she, and she you know I think lives on a social security monthly check but one thing she was you know worried about was if I fall down in the night who's going to call nine one one right. Like I'm not by, and she didn't even know about the, the things you can wear around your life, neck. Life alert, right? The, the life. So I bought one. I got one of those for, and huh. and there's a, you know, and it's on a cellular. So there's like a monthly charge for it. Um, I mean, it's not you know. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's very like, nice. But like that would be an example, like of trying to just, um, you know, meet someone and then then help with you know a need that I can can lead into. Very good. Uh, so it is the morning of a Tuesday, uh, and uh, we'll be wrapping up soon. Um, you have other work today. What's the most exciting thing on, on today's to-do list after this? The most exciting thing on today's to-do list? you have other meeting with the mayor or something? Anything cool? No, I'm not <laughs> meeting with. I can't. Uh, um, I've got staff meetings. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm getting ready to show many, for Thanksgiving. How many folks do Ooh. you have working for you? The Westside Future Fund total staff, including me, is fourteen. Fourteen, and so you, and you go to you lead the staff meetings. Yeah. You all meet. Do you, are you come in? Are you guys coming into the office? Or right you, now, it's voluntary, which means there's really not many people in the office. Yeah. Um, I'm in the office. Uh-huh. So. Um, so you'll be you'll be doing a Zoom staff meeting today. Actually, we got a, we do our staff meetings on Wednesday, so tomorrow. We'll have a, a Zoom staff meeting, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, everyone's like you know, back to my age. What is that? The Partridge family that you know when they started with in the beginning. That of was the Brady family. bunch. Brady bunch, which the I Brady bunch, which was not, which was off the air by the time I was born. But I did see re- reunions, uh, reruns. Well, that's what I feel like my staff meetings are because they <laughs> have beginning looking at. Yes, there is a the the most of my meetings and such of that. Uh, I am speaking to a couple folks. Whose proposals we reviewed later today, and we always do that over um, Zoom or or Google Meet. Uh, it's very my program wouldn't really be possible if it weren't for like being able to connect like this. I mean, not that long ago, if you wrote a grant proposal, you had to print it out 
and actually mail it to the grant maker, they were really slow to accept proposals online. Um, like most companies were emailing long after the foundations were accepting um, their submissions online. And so like, and back then, right, the committees met in person to make decisions. Like I never would have been able to like get the feedback together on all these submissions from all over the world and then actually talk to the applicants. Uh, <coughs> let alone interview all the great um, philanthropists and other professionals uh, through the podcast. It's very interesting being able to talk to you. Uh, I'm going to ask a couple uh, big questions and then we're going to let you go. Prepare for, prepare for tomorrow's staff meeting and everything. Uh, so um, right away, we're going to start with a really big question. What's the biggest problem you think today's philanthropists can realistically solve? You're working on affordable housing, and I would understand if you think that's the answer. But only if you think you get something that can be the today's philanthropists, folks giving and working on the issues today, can realistically solve. Do you think housing is that issue, or is there some? Is there another issue? A big like what's the biggest problem facing people that that givers and professionals like yourself can realistically solve in our lives well that's a great question the, well the way i've always thought about for me on philanthropy because some of the i've always you know focused a lot around issues around systemic poverty yeah and um you know if you raise the minimum wage that would have a huge impact on minimum wage right top yep you know, That's the, you need the government. Philanthropists can't. I mean, I guess they could supply supplement wages and stuff, but that's yeah. But I'm saying there's not enough money for that, right? And so you look at the 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 child tax credit credit they did as part of the American Recovery Act. Yeah, there's not that much philanthropy going out the door a year in terms of alleviating child poverty, right? So that that so my point though, but with what I find interesting about philanthropy is demonstrating a path that shows something can work. And then the and then the and then the public sector could move in more you mm. know aggressively, right? Like and, public libraries, for instance, Carnegie showed them that public libraries could work, and now right. pretty much every community expects a public library. Yeah, and you, you take in the case of uh, you know affordable housing because it really you know think about it you know you know you know housing for all. If you're going to have a you know a great community, you make sure you you know have housing for all. And why? You know why that's so essential. So hopefully, because the philanthropy is nowhere anywhere close to the government money. You know, but but demonstrating they're getting there. Yeah, the, <laughs> some of the really rich folks are are getting government type money. Yeah, and a lot of things too we do, and like and specifically the housing, because we'd like to see more government money. Is for very good reasons the government can't buy above appraised value on land. Yes, yeah, well, a taxpayer. An in, in an area where Microsoft just announced their second. Yeah headquarters guess what land prices are not selling at <laughs> yeah um and so philanthropy we we go out and buy stuff above you know we don't go crazy we can buy above appraised value but then the partnership with the public sector on the rehab and 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 helping us that's the power of okay we can use philanthropy to go get things done the public money can't mm-hmm. get done but then once we do it come in behind us so that I, that's what I find interesting about. Yeah, I, like, I think that's I like that too. So I think one of the, you said earlier, philanthropists can sort of show the path, uh, and then the public sector can then follow on, yeah. on that path. Because philanthropy can take risk, government can't take move quicker. Right. You know, innovation. Yep. So that that's what I always found interesting about for, for me on the on the on the philanthropy was was that aspect of it. So groups of, I've groups always of been interested in the kind of public policy issues for me. So philanthropists taking risks, doing innovations and stuff, eventually figure out a model 
to make affordable to make housing affordable for everybody in a community like Atlanta. And then from there, the governments see that path and they start taking it everywhere, and everybody lives in a home. That's that how we'll solve. That's how we'll do it. Well, it doesn't I sound mean, that unreal. I don't know. But the way I just said it didn't sound that pie in the sky, right? No, that's one. That that would be a terrific version that that you you demonstrate because you you know back to you know you gave some of the examples of Dr. King you know what he raised money for people today would be like you don't need to raise money for that because it just is <laughs> right you don't need to do a bus boycott yeah so, so <laughs> maybe yeah, you should you know. maybe there's probably some places where you should where you could reconsider those things the um so um like i said you're um uh involved in um a, a, a big big partnership between public players private players philanthropists and stuff and so i've got a four-part question for you Right, and if you can be, you feel free to answer it however you want. You don't have to give me four distinct answers. But um, what problems should corporations be solving? What problems should the government be solving? What problems should philanthropists be solving? And then which problems should all three be working together? Uh, assumedly, you think um, affordable housing is one where they should all work together. Um, but are there um, for other? There's other issues other than affordable. Once everybody's housed, we'll, we'll still have work to do. Um, particularly around this is you know, because we um, review for lots of different companies this comes up a lot uh, in Canada they expect different things from the government right in Norway they expect the government to provide services that Americans wouldn't expect and so their philanthropy gets affected they give to different causes because there's different expectations in your opinion what should the government be working on versus corporations versus individual philanthropists You know those those things that you know, but for the government, no one else is going to do it. Mm-hmm. And also because the government can tax, mm-hmm. you know, those things that are so freaking expensive that but for the taxation power, you know, no one's going to do it. So as an example, um, you know, in Atlanta, I know like other cities too, public safety is at the top of the issues for the new mayor. So when the survey is yep. done. Like that's definitely an area that government should be, right? Yeah, I don't think I want philanthropists, right, keeping the streets safe, right. <laughs> exactly. I'm not even sure what that would. That sounds bad. That sounds just like a recipe for disaster. So yeah, they're the police, the police force, and in fact, there is some history in the U.S. of private, in particular, not just in the U.S. throughout all history, private fire departments being absolute disasters. In fact, the richest man in the history of the world was a Roman general who invented the first private fire department. And he used to, if your house was on fire, he would be like, great, we'll put the fire out. But then I own your house. You have to sign this document and then you pay in rent. And he became the biggest landlord in the ancient world just by putting fires out. And in some cases, setting the fires himself, right? Um, and that's what you need, right? In fact, we had, that was up until, right? We had private fire departments in New York City um, uh, up until the late 19th century. And they would show up to the house and make you pay them before they put the fire out. That's, we can't have that, right? So, uh, I think I thoroughly agree there. Like public services that we know that everybody's going to need, um, right? That that's that's um, that should be the Infra- infrastructure. Yeah, we just got a big bill on infrastructure. Is there going to be opportunity for uh, affordable housing projects like yours in that bill? I haven't read it that thoroughly. I think um, you know the extent that we have some partnership bill on housing, they have more funds yeah. potentially. Yeah. So. Um, so infrastructure, public safety, obviously public education will be another one. I think we'd expect, at least I would, government not looking to see all that privatized and up to philanthropists to fund. Mm-hmm. 
But they, so, it, and it sounds like, and we were talking about this a little bit before, you like philanthropists that sort of put that, like, like when you're getting a PhD, for instance, push the envelope, right? Go right up to the edge of, pro, of the progress that we know is possible and then maybe try to go a little further, show a path for the government and others to follow. Yeah. And, in, and, in, and I don't think, I mean, just kind of broadly speaking, do we want to design a system such that some of the most pressing problems depend upon philanthropists to solve? Would, would we want that, you know, as opposed to our collective action is through government, whether that's local, state, or, or federal. Mm -hmm. and, and so to me, it's like, okay, you know, back to, but, but we're, and because also philanthropy is, is a choice, right? So people, people can choose to be less or more. And it doesn't matter, right, for many people, it's not even money, it's just time. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, you know, you know, philanthropy working on kind of the, you know, the inspiration, the, the models, you know, you know, pushing us all to be, to be better so that, so that the collective action, you know, comes in behind it. But I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, no, this is, I, I, I think you are. I think it's very interesting. The, um, so the, uh, philanthropists tend to be wealthy, right? Then, and so but the ones we read about, but if you take philanthropy, right, you know, this too, that the data says a lot of people that are more modest income or more generous percentage. Right? Oh yeah. Poor people are the most generous people in the U S. Yeah, so, so they yeah. are, and the reason the reasons for that, uh, and if you look at where they give, uh, is much different. People tend to give to things they experience personally. The wealthy give to medical research because they've either had that disease, they fear getting the disease, their father had that disease, their kid had that disease, right? Alzheimer's research. Anybody who donates primarily to Alzheimer's research, you can guarantee they're related to someone who has Alzheimer's, or they're personally worried about getting it themselves, or both. Um, the, uh, the, one of the, the, one of the things philanthropists are best at is symphonies, orchestras, museums, uh, ballets, dance halls, because right. The, the, the people who had enough money to give gifts at that level actually went and enjoyed those things, right? When it comes to an issue like not being able to afford a home, sort of definitionally philanthropists won't be familiar with that. Right? So it's, it's, a, it's more foreign to them. They're not going to be as innately good at funding it. As it when it's when it comes to a theater, they know exactly what they want the theater to look like, and they make beautiful ones. We have we have really nice museums, <laughs> funded by private philanthropy all over the country here, right? And in fact, Carnegie's libraries were beautiful because he himself enjoyed the concept of going to the library. He never needed the library to like get a job, right? But he it was a service he that he could connect with in things, and so I think that's great. So when it comes to an issue like housing. It's good to have philanthropists working with you, but you're right, they won't, they, they might not be connected to it. That's getting the government involved and then also getting those corporate issues, right? Then we get what we call what Ameri a foundational American value of checks and balances, right? Different perspectives, different voices, different abilities, right? And hopefully right. end up um, doing some different work on, on an issue that, you know, has been largely intractable. Throughout, uh, you know, governments, corporations, and philanthropy have all housed people over the over the last right. hundred years but the issue remains right no man it takes all of us right what would what would nature teach us right if, if a forest is just one kind of tree or one kind of thing it doesn't do very well <laughs> a, a vibrant ecosystem requires diversity yes absolutely i recently read a very interesting study on happiness and if and it was a happiness in relation to the number of different birds that you can see during a different day people who only see one species of bird in a day are, are generally very depressed. It's like people who live in a lighthouse and only see seagulls, right? But if you live in a, uh, in a, a diverse ecosystem 
Uh, I, I'm a I'm an active birder, and I have counted 37 different species of birds from from the property right here, right? And I th I'm very happy, and I, I definitely see the connection. I see a lot of different variety in my life instead of just one kind of bird all the time, <laughs> and it allows me to be a much more and it's just you know new variety is the spice of life, as they say, and I think that applies to a lot of things. This has been a very interesting conversation. I really uh, appreciate your work. I like the stuff that the Westside Future Fund is doing. Uh, if you've ever got a grant proposal. Uh, and you want some feedback from some experts, feel free to send it along. We'd love to read it. Uh, also, if you or anybody on your team wants to read some proposals with us, uh, we'll be next reading in the spring. We always have proposals related to the issue of housing. Um, some organizations like yours like to put their grant writer on our committee to give them extra experience and perspective or like your development interns or whatever. We would love to stay involved with the Westside Future Fund. I think it's really neat work. Um, if there's ever anything I can do to help you, let me know. Uh, before I let you go, on with your day, trying to house the good citizens of Atlanta uh, and revitalize Dr. King's former neighborhood. Uh, do you have any questions for me? Anything you want to say to me or the folks at home, so, as they say? Thanks for listening, if, if people are still... Uh, <laughs> I actually, from my analytics, you'd be surprised how many people make it all the way to the end of the episode. And... Uh, <laughs> If I'm saying your listeners want to know more about the Westside Future Fund, we'd love to love to whether uh, it's by email. It's just like, hey, we're interested in something someone on our side want, want to learn more about it because we learn from others. So I take like, we have an obligation to kind of kind of share what we've learned and pass it on. So happy to do that. And thank you. You know, great, grateful that you took time out of your day not only to do this interview but obviously to prepare for it. Uh, yes, thank you. It actually is. It does take a little bit of time, so I I appreciate that. And thank you for uh, for reaching out. Normally, I have to book my own guests. Um, you guys uh, found out about me and reached out to me, which I really appreciate. That makes that does make my work a little bit easier. Thank you you're, very much. You're becoming famous as all those birds you watch. <laughs> I, for, we were very briefly, I don't know, I don't really understand how the algorithm works, but we were like the number one nonprofit podcast for, for a little while. And oh, wow. I think, and I ended up on like someone's like outreach list for podcast hosts. And I'm pretty sure that's how you ended up finding us. Um, but they, uh, hopefully uh, a lot of folks listen to this episode. I think that we, we definitely got a lot of mm -hmm. stuff, good stuff on the tape. Um, if I, uh, I meet a lot of people, I read a lot of interesting proposals. If, I, if, ever, if ever anyone's doing cool, interesting work in Atlanta, I may um, put it on your attention. Uh, yeah. Feel free to be Thank back you. and forth. And if I ever get down there to Atlanta, uh, one of our evaluators just moved down there. I've been meaning to come down to visit. Um, but uh, big city, one of the biggest cities in America, obviously very important um, and even occasionally internationally important, right? You got a big airport and all that. Lots of eyes on you. Um, best of luck with your work going forward. Let me know if there's anything I can do. Uh, thank you everybody at home for listening to a very long episode of the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. We've been interviewing and it was Johnny. I'm sorry, I'm going to... You, you um, correct him, John Amon. Yep. John Amon of the West Side Future Fund, uh, who has, um, we're going to let him get back to work. Thank you very much for listening, uh, and good luck with your funding and your fundraising.